Welcome to this seminar today, Tough Questions. I'm hosting this morning, my name is Andy, uh, but the person you've come to listen to is Jay. And a quick intro from me, because I want this man to have as much time as possible. You are in for an outstanding treat today. In terms of today's topic on Islam, every day, literally, in this country, on the news, is a story related to that faith. And whilst we can be in this tent, know the presence and the power of God, feel like when we're worshipping him, we're right in his throne room, cry out prayers for God to change our nation, pray for God to equip us so that when we're in our schools, universities and workplaces, we've got something to say and we don't just know God in this place. If you want to do that and live like that, then you've got to address the subject of Islam, hence putting this seminar on. When it comes to asking to speak about that subject, but particularly in terms of how to reach people in this nation, obviously Islam spreads right the way around the world. The focus this morning is equipping us in this nation. There is no better person than Jay Smith. You can find him on YouTube debating with Muslims, You can find him at High Park Corner just about every weekend debating. And what is thrilling, they don't have much to say back by the time he's finished. So that gives you a little bit of a clue of the caliber of who's speaking to us this morning. So I'm going to finish, but please make him feel very, very welcome now in your day. Come on. Okay, I assume that all of you have Muslim friends. Please tell me you all have Muslim friends. Show of hands. And I assume all of you are talking about Jesus Christ with your Muslim friends. Now, that may not be the first thing you talk about, but sooner or later, when you meet your Muslims, whether in school or at work or maybe in your neighborhood, possibly even in your family, some of you, what's going to come up over and over again are questions. And what I would suggest you do I know there is a fear of talking about Jesus or talking about your faith with Muslims. There is a fear in the church. It's pervasive right across not only this country but my country. And I think the problem is that people feel that if we talk about our faith that we will be hurting their sensibilities. Please, please, if there's one thing you hear today, remember, talking about Jesus hurts nobody's sensibilities and especially Muslims. And one of the things you need to do is you need to say who you are right from the uh, startup. When you meet a Muslim and they want to talk to you or they want to find out who you are, say very clearly that I believe that Jesus is God and I believe the Bible is the word of God. Do you have an opinion? They're going to have all kinds of opinion about those two things, especially Jesus and the Bible. And I have found with now working for 33 years with Muslims, whenever I talk about Jesus and whenever I talk about the Bible, immediately every Muslim I talk to, whether they are radical, whether they are nominal, whether they are liberal, they're going to have an opinion about those two subjects, and that opinion may continue for three hours. God bless the Muslims. Aren't they great? They love to talk about the things that are important to me and important to you. So please don't feel shy Not only in introducing yourself, but introducing Jesus Christ into the conversation. When you do that, you're going to get a lot of questions. And right at the top of the list, Muslims are going to ask you, how can you believe in God having a son? That's what they're going to say. How can God have a son? Because if God had a son, that means he had to have a wife. 
And it's in the Quran itself, in this book here, in Surah 2, Ayah 106. It's very clear. I'm sorry, in Surah 6, Ayah 101, it's very clear that God does not have a consort. God does not have a wife. They're going to throw at you, how could God have a son? That's in Surah 4, Ayah 171. Now, when I say Surah, I mean book. When I say Ayah, I mean verse. So in book 4, verse 171, it says very clearly, Say not three, for God is one, and he has no son. So they have to ask that question right off the top. The Quran not only demands it, but Muslims also are confused by the notion that God, how could God up here have a son down here? How could he come down and have a consort, a wife, from which comes a human? How could God, who is omnipotent, how could God, who is totally other, how could God, who is eternal, have a man, a boy, a child, who is finite? You can see the confusion, and I would suggest that this has been a confusion for 2,000 years, not just with Islam. The earliest disciples had the same question. How could God have a son? But what you need to do is you need to ask them, what do you mean by son? Because in the Quran, there are two words for son. There is Ibn and Wahid. Now, Ibn means son, relational. It's a relational son. Walid is a biological son. And Ibn Ul-Sabili is found in the Quran. Surah 2, Ayah 177 says, A traveler, someone who's going from one place to the other, is a son of the road. Now, anybody reading that would not suggest that the person who's a traveler was born from the ground of the road. So it accommodates the idea of relationships. But what's most important, if they have a problem with the biological aspect, ask them really what you're talking about is that Jesus has always been the Son of God, eternally been the Son of God, will always be the Son of God. Therefore, if he is the Son of God, he is God. And see how they react then. They'll get even more angry. Because sonship, the fact that Jesus claims it, is one of the most, I would say, the strongest references in the Bible of where he's saying, I am God. And that's what they don't like. How could a man be God? I remember I did a debate in Russia. I do lots of debates all over the world. And I was in Kazan teaching, and some of the clerics who were there in the town heard that I was in town, so they challenged me to a debate. They said, uh, we, we, we wanted to talk about Jesus. And I said, fine, let's go ahead and have a debate. I had to use a translator because I don't know any Russian I went through three translators, they said, because I speak so fast. I don't think I do. But certainly, this was the first question that came up. And the first thing they asked me is, Mr. Smith, Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest. God is omnipotent. Please, please don't say that he had a son. Please don't say that God took on human form. Because when you're doing that, you're taking away his omnipotence. And I turned to my translator and I said, I want you to say to them, shame on you. Now, they wouldn't do that. And I said, no, I want you to say exactly what I'm saying. Shame on you. Don't ever say, Allahu Akbar, God is the greater. But he cannot, have a, he cannot come to earth and be a man. Because when you say that God is the greatest, that he is omnipotent, but he cannot come and be a man, you have just taken away his omnipotency. You have just taken away his greatness. God can do anything he wants. And it's simple for him to become a man. It's simple for him to take on human form. Don't ever say in my presence, I said to the debaters, don't ever say that again. Please don't say God can't take on human form. Maybe your God can't take on human form. Maybe your God named Allah is so distant, so other, has to remain in heaven, never can come to earth. Then I would suggest that your God's too small. Get a bigger God. Come on home. We've got him. His name is Jesus Christ. 
And we need to take this initiative back. Because when we say that God took on human form, we're leaving, we're allowing him to choose what he wants to do. We're allowing him, yes, to take on any form. He was a man right there at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He was walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. You have to have a pair of legs to walk. You better have a pair of lungs if you're going to cry out, where are you? That's my God. From the very beginning, he took on human form. And he did so with Abraham. There in front of the tent of Mamre, there was God eating with Abraham. If you're going to eat, you better have a stomach. You better have a mouth. He was wrestling with Jacob. You cannot wrestle without legs and arms. My God can take on human form all any time he wants, and he does through all the way through history, taking on human form over and over again. But hold on a minute. He doesn't just take on human form. Remember when the children were going through the desert and there was a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. That was God. God can take on even the form of a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. And what about Moses? Remember Moses? Now this is a good one that you can use with your Muslim friends because the same story is in the Quran. You can tell them to go and open up Surah 20, Ayah 10 to 14. Surah 20, that's book 20, it has a story of Moses. He looks at the distance and he sees a fire. So he goes to investigate the fire. As he comes close to the fire, the voice from within the bush that is burning, which is the same story we have in our Bible, it talks to Moses and says, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Ask your Muslim friend, what does that mean, holy ground? Can you have holy ground without God being there? And immediately you can see they're going to be in a bind. The fact that it's holy means God's at that bush. If they have any doubt, tell them to go on to verse 14. Because in verse 14, the voice in the bush says to Moses, truly, this is Allah who is speaking to you. Now ask your Muslim friend. So that bush is talking to Moses, claiming to be God, Allah. Can anybody or anything claim to be God except God? And the answer is no. Anathema. Nobody can claim to be God. Nobody can claim to be equal with God but God himself. So if that bush is saying, this is Allah, I am Allah who is speaking to you, is Allah in that bush? See how they answer that. They're going to struggle because they're going to realize, hold on a minute, we've got a problem here. Nobody can come and claim God's name and no bush can be holy unless God is there. Immediately you have to suggest that that is Allah in that bush. Say, okay, if that's Allah in that bush, did God come to earth in 1400 BC at the time of Moses? The answer is yes, of course. So if he came to earth in 1400 BC, then why are the Muslims having a problem from him coming to earth 2,000 years ago and walking and talking for 33 years? That's my God. What a big God we've got. And I want to make sure Muslims realize that by not only acknowledging that God can take on any form, not only acknowledging that he did take human form and also other forms all the way through history, that therefore we have no problem as Christians believing he took on the form of a baby and came for 33 years and lived amongst us. And that suddenly eradicates the whole notion that God can have a son, that God can come to earth. Now, one of the problems they'll come up with, and they'll say, well, hold on a minute. If God took on human form, that means he's corrupted, because we're all corrupted. All humans are corrupted. I love that when they admit that, because that's true. We are all corrupted. Since the time of Adam and Eve, we've been corrupted. And they say, therefore, God coming to earth, taking on a human form, that corrupts God. And I always say, hold on a minute. If God is truly God, and he can do anything he wants... It's simple for him to take on human form. We've already made that clear. 
He's done it right through history. Can he take on human form and not be corrupted? You'll see the gears start to turn in their minds as they start to think this over. And you'll see very clearly that they realize that they're dealing with a contradiction. You cannot suggest that God could take on any form but be corrupted by that form. By virtue of being God, he can stand above corruption. And the great thing about it is the Quran answers this, t- this whole question. In the Quran, in Surah 19, Ayah 19, that's chapter 19, verse 19, there you see Gabriel coming to Mary and saying to Mary, truly, I'm giving you a righteous son. Ask your Muslim friend, what does it mean to be righteous? Righteous means to be sinless. So even the Quran suggests very clearly that Jesus, or Issa as his name is, is righteous. He is sinless. So there is one individual in the whole history of mankind who is sinless, and that's a man. Look at his name, Issa, Jesus. See, every other prophet in the Quran sins. They all sin. Abraham sins, Dauda sins, Adama sins, even Yahya sins, John the Baptist, but not Issa. Issa is the only sinless one. So the very question they're answering, asking is already answered by their own Quran. We would have the same notion. When God took on human form, he was sinless. There's no corruption in what he said and did. Yes, he took on all the limitations of humanity. He had to eat like you and me. And my Muslim friends, in fact, in this same debate, the second question they asked me was, if you're saying that God took on human form, did he go to the toilet? I said, yes, my God can go to the toilet, can't yours? If your God cannot go to the toilet, I can do something your God can't do, which makes me greater than your God. Don't ever limit God. Of course he can go to the toilet. Don't say, don't ever in my presence say, that that's impossible for God. So then they ask the third question. Can God die? Can God cease to exist? That's a hard one. And I finally turned to my translator, and I said to my translator, I want you to tell them right now. Here you have told me that God can't come to earth. You've told me that God cannot take on human form. You've told me that God cannot enter time and space. You've told me that God cannot eat. That's Surah 5, Ayah 75. You've told me that God cannot have a partner. I don't believe that Jesus is a partner of God. He is God. You've told me that God cannot have a son. And you've told me that he cannot go to the toilet. Now you're telling me that he cannot die. Rather than you telling me what God can and cannot do, it is not your place to tell God what he can and cannot do. Let's go and see what God says. And I opened right up to John 10, where Jesus Christ says, for the Son of Man can lay down his life and take it up again. Yes, my God can die. But he doesn't cease to exist. Even we, when we die, we don't cease to exist. There's another life after it. But look and see what it says. He laid down his life. That means he died on a Friday. That's the day the Muslims celebrate. Friday's here, but Sundays are coming. And on Sunday, he rose from the death, destroying death. My God can die, but he doesn't stay dead. He rises again. What a God we've got. Dies and rises again and destroys death by that one action. And in fact, by saying before he even did so that he can die and rise again, he was saying clearly, I am God. Only God can die and rise again. Only he has the power to lay down his life and take it up again. That's as clear a statement of divinity as I know anywhere in the Bible. Muslims always ask, where did Jesus ever say, I am God? Have you heard that one? I hear it all the time. Where does it say, I am God? Now, fortunately, Jesus didn't speak English, so he didn't have to say, I am God in English. But he was speaking to Jews, and so therefore he used Jewish terms. He used Jewish 
divine titles. And you can see these divine titles right through the New Testament. Every time Jesus said, I am the Messiah, he was saying, I am God. Every time he claimed to be the Son of God, he was saying, I am God. Every time he was claiming to be the Son of Man, that one the Muslims really love to throw at you. See, Jesus, the most popular name, the most popular title he took for himself is Son of Man. And they say, see, that proves to us that he's nothing more than a man. And then I say, well, you've not read Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Because in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it defines who the Son of Man is. And the Son of Man, as it says very clearly, shall come in the clouds. He shall be from everlasting to everlasting, have dominion over all tribes, nations, peoples, and tongues. Now, who can be from everlasting to everlasting but God himself? In claiming to be the Son of Man, he was saying, I am from everlasting to everlasting. I am God. That's why he claimed it more than any other time. 25 times in the New Testament, you'll hear that claim from Jesus. But Mari, the, probably the best name that he used to claim that he was God is John chapter 8, verse 58. John 8, 58, the Jews came to him. They were asking him about Abraham. And he said, well, before Abraham was, I am. Ego eimi in Greek. Yahweh in Hebrew. That's probably the most important name for God because that is God's unique name. Now, when you say that, I say, I I help my Muslim friends with this. I said, in the Old Testament, we have three names for God. One is Adonai. That's found 340 times. That's just descriptive. The other is Elohim. That comes the closest you can get to Allah because Allah, I'm having a problem with Allah. Allah just means the God, generic, nothing more. Anybody can be called the God. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing specific about it. There's certainly nothing holy about it. It's just the God. And that's exactly the name you see in the Quran. The God, the God, the God, the God. So Elohim is the closest to that, but it's quite different. It is generic, but it's not singular. That'd be Eloi. It's not dual. That would be Eloha. It's Elohim. That means three or more. Ooh, I love that. Elohim is three or more, the Hebrew name for God that's found 2,000 times in the Old Testament is a divinity who is plural. And you see that in the very first chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1, in fact, the very first verse. In the beginning, Elohim, plural, but look at the verb that follows it, bara, is singular. Ooh, I love that. Here is a plural God, yet he creates as one. It doesn't make sense in Hebrew. Well, of course it doesn't make sense in Hebrew because it's defining God in the very first verse. Further on down, he refers to himself. He says, let us, in verse 26 and 27, let us make man in our image. There's the plurality. In his image, singular, masculine, singular, he does his imaging. But then we get into the whole thing is who is Allah? Because the word that I'm looking for is Yahweh. See, Elohim is only found 2,000 times. Adonai, 340. But that's still not the best name. Remember Moses? He was told to go down to Egypt to bring back the Israelites. He did not want to go. And he tried to get out every way. I can't speak properly. Let, let Aaron, my brother, do it for me. I'm not capable. Please, let someone else do it. Finally, he turns to God in Exodus chapter 3. And he asks God, what is your name? Tell me your name. So when I go down to Egypt, they will know what God I represent. He was not satisfied with Elohim. He was not satisfied with Adonai. He wanted a personal name. He wanted a unique name. He wanted a name that could not be, that no other God had. And what's the name God gave him at that time? Yahweh. Four letters. Yaha, Waha. 
We don't know the vowelization. It's only a consonantal text. Could be Yahweh, could be Jehovah. Most scholars believe it is Yahweh. And that's the name God gave to Moses there in 1400 BC so that when he went down to Egypt, the Israelites will know which God that he represented. It is God's personal name. It is God's unique name. It is God's holy name. That's the name every prophet used from that time on. Look at the Bible. 6,823 times. 6,823 times. That's the most important name for God. And that's the name that Jesus claimed in John chapter 8, 58. No wonder the Jews picked up stones to stone him because even pronouncing the name was anathema in Judaism and yet he was not just pronouncing it, he was claiming it for himself before Abraham was Yahweh, ego I am who I am. See, my Jesus knew exactly who he was. Your Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Muslims need to hear this. They're not going to find out unless you go to them. Now, what's interesting is everything we talk about comes from this book. And these are the two books that are in right now in conflict. Which is the bigger book? This one, right? I keep it bigger for a reason. It's the bigger, it's the better book. This is a little small for a reason. It's what I think of it. And I have no problem telling Muslims what I think about their Quran. Because this book, the Quran is what gets everything wrong. See, it's this book, the Quran, that tells me that Allah is one. But it's not the oneness that I see in this book because it's not triune. More than that, this God never comes to earth. This God is totally other. This God never has a relationship. This God is incapable of limiting himself. This God is incapable of having a relationship with me. And this God never dies on the cross. Whereas the God we have in this book does all of that and more. We do not share the same God. Please do not be confused on that. You'll hear people that suggest that we have the same God because they are the God of Abraham. Both Islam and Christianity share the God of Abraham. If you ever have someone that say that to you, this is what you need to do. Go up to them and say, I'm, and shake their hand. Say, let me shake your hand. Abdul, let's just say Abdul's coming over here and I, Abdul says that we share the same God. I want to shake your hand, Abdul. I want to thank you. Finally, you have finally understood that the God of God, the Quran is one yet three. The God of the Quran can come to earth and walk and talk in the cool of the day. And your God, you're finally telling me, you're finally admitting that your God died on the cross. By that time, they pull their hands out of your hand because they do not accept your definition. Make sure you define who God is. Let the Christians define who God is. And see, it's on those three notions that we disagree with Islam. Our God does come to earth. Our God does intersect time and space. Our God is one yet three, triune. And yes, our God dies and rises again. What a God we've got. But then we get to Scripture because Scripture is where it's defined. Scripture is where we find out about our God. And it's in Scripture, those two books, that the battle is being fought today. And this is the battle I have to fight everywhere I go. And for many years, for 33 years, I could really not take on the Quran. It was very hard to do so. Now, let me just say one thing before I go on any further. I'm a polemicist. A polemicist is someone who goes on the offense. I don't want any of you to do what I'm doing, okay? What I do at Speaker's Corner every Sunday, what I do on debates around the world, what I do on YouTube is a very, it's a, only should be done by a few people. If you want to be a polemicist, which is the opposite of an apologist, if you want to be a polemicist, you better know Islam very well. And those who are on my team, we know Islam very well. We've been studying it for many years. But every one of you can be apologists. Every one of you can defend your faith. 
And if you want to defend your faith, you better know your Bible very well. And you better know Jesus Christ. And that's all we're asking you to do. Just talk about Jesus. And just talk about the Bible. But you need to know what's happening in the polemical world. You need to know what we're coming up across. And you need to know what we're now finding. You probably saw in the news last week or the week before. Did you all see on BBC that they found the oldest Quran in existence? Did any of you remember that? Did you see those pages that they found in Birmingham? Birmingham University, and they dated them at Oxford Laboratory for Accelerated Mass Spectrography. And when they dated those two folios, just four pages, two pages front and back, when they dated them, they dated them to 568 up to 645. Muhammad died in 632. The Quran was written in 650. Can you see a problem already? Remember, radiocarbon dating, radiocarbon 14 dating is very inexact. And therefore, you have to take a spectrum. And the spectrum started in 568. Muhammad was born in 570. So this is before the time of Muhammad. And it goes right up to 645. Muhammad died in 632. So this is 13 years after Muhammad's death. The problem is, the Quran was not written down when he was living. It was written down by a man named Uthman, the third caliph, in 650. So these pages could not be Quranic. Ooh, I love that. BBC didn't do their homework very well. Those who had Birmingham didn't look to ask, what is it that every Muslim knows? Every Muslim knows that Uthman had four men, Zaid ibn Thabit, Zubair, Alas, and Hadith. The four of them, they were the ones that were given the job to write the Quran down in its final form. This Quran that I have in my hand today, according to them, came, therefore, in 650. That is a good seven to six, uh, seven to eight years after these folios, the latest date for these folios, but the median date between six, uh, 645 and 568, the median date is 606. So the best date for that manuscript or those folios are 606. Muhammad started receiving his revelations in 610. So this predates even when Muhammad started receiving his revelation. Ooh, I love that. So what are those two pages? You've seen them on the news. Scholar after scholar has been coming up, and interestingly, all the Western scholars are having a problem. They're saying, hold on a minute, be careful about getting too excited about this. These all predate the Quran. These cannot be from the Quran. Though they parallel Surah 18, Surah 19, and Surah 20, these are pre-Quranic, and the reason why is take a look at the Quran. You will see that this book is borrowed stories. Story after story after story is borrowed from other sources. Surah 5, Ayah 31, the story of Cain and Abel. That comes from the Targum of Jonathan ben Uzziah. Surah 21, Ayah 51 to 71, the story of Abraham in Mecca. I had no idea he lived in Mecca, but according to the Quran, he did live in Mecca. That story is from the Mishnah of Rabbah, which is a second century apocryphal account, Jewish apocryphal account. Surah 27. Ayah 17 to 44, the story of Solomon and Sheba. A great story. It's an amazing story, but it's not the same story you have in your Bible. Why? Just listen to it. You will not recognize it. According to the Quran, Solomon every day would get a a pile of birds together and he would march them, getting ready for battle. Left, right, left, right. And then they would fly up into the air and they would drop stones on the enemy. And on the bottom of every stone is the name of the enemy they're going to kill. The first air force ever invented there by Solomon, according to Surah 27. One day, as he was training up his birds, one of the birds was missing, the hoopoe bird. It goes, hoopoe, hoopoe, and that's why it's called the hoopoe bird. It was missing, his favorite bird. He gets angry, wants to know where the bird is, and then he sees it flying from the south, and it lands at his feet. And he says, where have you been? 
He says, well, I've been down to the south, and there's this beautiful queen down there in the country of Sheba, the queen of Sheba. You must go see her. Well, he's too busy marching his birds, so he asks the bird, to go, the hoopoe bird to go on back and bring the queen up, which the bird does, lands at the feet of the queen and talks to her. I had no idea that the queen of Sheba can talk to birds or that Solomon could talk to birds, but there it is in Surah 27, so I have to believe at least what that story is saying. She comes up to Jerusalem, and she comes in the door there of the throne room. Solomon is here sitting on his throne. As she is about to cross over to where Solomon is sitting, there, she notices that there is a pond of water. There's a glass over the pond of water. She doesn't know what that glass is, and so she picks up her skirts to keep them from getting wet in the pond. That's where the story ends in verse 44. Now, have you come across that story in your Bible? Is that story in our Bible? Absolutely not. Why not? Wouldn't you have loved to have that story in Sunday school? There's a reason why it's not in our Bible, and the reason's very simple. That story comes from the second Talmud of Esther, a second century apocryphal account written by Jews as a bedtime story for their children. It never was part of scripture. It was written long after scripture had already been finished. It was actually a folk tale that they got from the diaspora and they put biblical names to it just to engage their children. Yet that story finds its way into Surah 27, Ayah 14 to 44. Ah, hold on a minute. It's almost the exact same story except for the ending. In the second Talmud of Esther, as she picks up her skirts to keep them from getting wet, her legs are very hairy. When Solomon sees the hair on her legs, he cries out in surprise. That you won't find in the Quran. That has been taken out for obvious reasons, out of embarrassment. But can you see what we've just done? We know who wrote these stories. We know where they came from. We know they came from the second century up until the fifth century. These are all pre-Quranic. These are the stories from which the Quran has borrowed. Those two folios that were just discovered two weeks ago are part of those stories. That's all they have discovered. The stories from which the Quran has borrowed. Proving that the Quran does not come from God. It comes from men. Proving that the Quran was never eternal. According to Surah 85, Ayah 22, it is eternal. No, it's not. Proving that it was not sent down to a man named Muhammad between 610 and 632. And also proving that it didn't even come from Uthman. Ooh, I love it. But the biggest problem is this. So where are those manuscripts that Uthman made? See, this book was finalized in 650. Four manuscripts were made and sent to four different cities. Basra, Baghdad, Damascus, and Medina. Four complete manuscripts of the Quran. We're just talking about 1,400 years ago. Ask your Muslim friends, where are those four manuscripts? There's no excuse not to have them today. Those four cities have not been destroyed. They've not, there's been no earthquakes. There's been no fire, no floods. Uh, we don't know of any destruction of any manuscripts at all in the 7th or 8th century. So where are those original manuscripts? See, we can go back to our Bible and come up with the entire New Testament, all 27 books by the 4th century, right here in the British Library. You've got it. You people own it. That's 300 years before the Quran. Right next to it, in the next glass cabinet there in the British Library, is the Alexandrinus, the entire Old and New Testament from the 5th century. That's 200 years earlier. You want to go to Rome and you get the Vaticanus, which is the entire New Testament from the 4th century. So we have three complete metropolitan codices that are two to 300 years before the 7th century. Why can't the Muslims come up with one manuscript? That's all we're asking. Ooh, I love it. And what we've now found it is all the earliest manuscripts that we're looking at 
That's the Topkapi in Istanbul. That's the Samarkand in Tashkent. That's the Husseini in, uh, um, in Cairo. That's the Ma'il Quran that's here in London. The Petropolis, which is in Paris, and the Sana manuscript, which is in Yemen. Those are the six major manuscripts. They are the most complete manuscript. Not one of them is from the 7th century. They only begin to appear in the 8th century, 60 to 100 years after Muhammad. And not one of them is complete, nor do they completely parallel the Quran that we have today. So when was the Quran finally canonized? When was it completed? Ask your Muslim friends this. It was completed and canonized in 1924, less than 100 years ago. Your Prince Philip is older than the Quran. Put that under your hat. As much as I love Prince Philip, can you see what we're saying? We can pretty well destroy the Quran today, but you can't do the same with the Bible. That's the beauty of the Bible. Now, you're probably hearing an awful lot of what's going on with Muslims today, and you're hearing almost everything in the news, and it doesn't sound so pleasant, does it? This group called ISIS. Are you talking about it with your Muslim friends? It's in the news almost every week, ISIS, Islamic State of Iraq and al-Shams. And there's a debate happening within Islam concerning who these people are. Why this group over here in Iraq and Syria, led by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, remember this Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is no floozy. This man has a PhD, has a doctorate in Islamic theology and Islamic history. So you're talking about somebody who knows his material. That's why everything they do, they support in scripture. They go back to that book. Every act they do, they either quote from the Quran or they quote from the traditions. That's the Siddha, the biography of the Prophet Muhammad. That's the Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. That's the Tafsir, the commentaries on the Quran. And that's the Tahrik, which would be the histories of all mankind. They go back to this book and they go back to that man. The book and the man, the book and the man, the book and the man, the book and the man. Everything ISIS does is founded on scripture, modeled by one man, Muhammad. That's why they're so dangerous. And that's why so many Muslims now are paying attention to them. Because in my lifetime, I've never come across a group that, is, uh, that follows this book as closely as ISIS does. And also that follows the model of Muhammad as closely as ISIS does. Now I'm going to say something that may be pretty controversial. But as far as I'm concerned, ISIS has done me a favor. As controversial as that may sound to you, why am I saying that? Because I've never found a group that actually follows exactly what true Islam is all about. Because when you read that book, when you read the Quran, you will find there are violent verses after violent verses. 149 violent verses in this book. And they all belong in the Medinan surahs, which are the later surahs, which are the more authoritative surahs. The surahs that supposedly were revealed to the Prophet Muhammad when he was living in Medina between 622 and 632, the last 10 years of his life. That's why, according to Islamic tradition, those are the most important verses. And it's those verses where you find all the violence. Muslims always come up to me and they say that Islam is a religion of peace, that the Quran is a book of peace, that Muhammad is a man of peace. Have you heard this? I'm hearing it all the time. Your government officials are saying it. Certainly many of your pundits are saying it. I'm hearing people in the church saying it. Whenever they say that, ask them one simple question. Can you show me one verse in the Quran that says you're to have peace with me, a Christian, a Jew? I've been asking that for 33 years. Show me one verse in the Quran that says a Muslim is to have peace with me. You're not going to find it. 
Oh, there are some peaceful verses. There's probably the best is Surah 109, which is a Meccan Surah, which says, to you, your religion, to me, my religion. That's as close as you're going to get. But that has nothing to do with peace with me. It just says you can continue being your religion. And that was revealed according to the Islamic tradition, not according to me, while Muhammad was in Mecca, while he was still without authority. Once he moved to Medina, then the verses completely change. And when you look at Medina, you will see verse after verse after verse. Slay the unbeliever wherever ye find them. Besiege them. Lay in wait for them with every kind of ambush. That's Surah 9, Ayah 5. Surah 9, Ayah 29 talks about us specifically. Make war on the people of the book. Ali Qatab, that's us, Christians and Jews, until we pay the jizya tax, which is what the Christians had to pay in Mosul, what they're still having to pay in Iraq today. Slay the unbeliever until there is no more fitna or no more unbelief in the land. That's in Surah 8, Ayah 39. Cut off the heads of the unbeliever. Surah 47, Ayah 4. It's straight out of the Quran. That's why they're doing that in Iraq today. They're not making it up. They don't have a predilection to cutting off heads. It's because it's in that book, word for word, black and white. That's why we've got to confront this book. That's why we've got to show the antidote. Because the only antidote to this book is this book. People want peace today, do they not? And I would suggest that most of the Muslim friends you come across, and you're going to come across them in your school, you're going to come across them in your neighborhoods, they do believe that Islam is a religion of peace. And they really do believe that this book is a book of peace. Ask your Muslim friends whether they have read this book. The vast majority have never read this book for one very simple reason. You don't need to read this book. You memorize this book. You memorize it in Arabic, not in English. Verse by verse by verse by verse. And the more you memorize it, the more you receive what they call barakah. Barakah means blessings. See, every Muslim believes that when they were born, they are given a two angels. One angel sits on their right shoulder, and the other angel sits on their left shoulder. The angel that sits on the right shoulder records the good deeds. Barakah, 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 barakah. The angel that sits on their left shoulder records their bad deeds. Basically, you work off your salvation by doing good deeds. Baraka, 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 baraka. So whenever you read the Quran and memorize it, you receive baraka. Whenever you do five prayers a day, you receive baraka. Whenever you do the hajj in your lifetime, do the pilgrimage to Mecca, you receive baraka. Whenever you do the Ramadan fast with everybody else, you receive baraka. Whenever you pay 2.5% zakat, you receive baraka, 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 baraka. You build up your credit against your debit. It's just like a bank account. Credit and debit, credit and debit. Basically, it's what every religion that's made by man has said. Every man-made religion starts from that premise except Christianity. Christianity says no. There's not a thing you can do. You cannot build up your credit. Remember, it was only one sin that Adam and Eve did. One sin destroyed that relationship we had with God. At one time, we were walking and talking in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve only did one sin. That's it. They ate of a fruit. That's why I hate fruit today. I can't eat fruit. I have a terrible time with fruit because I keep on being reminded of that sin. I've got an Apple computer. I have to cover up the back just to keep, keep reminding me because there it is on the back of my computer. I'm being joking. Don't take that too serious. But can you see? That's it. One sin destroyed everything. There's not a thing we can do because we're all sinful. Our God is so holy that he cannot have one sin in his presence. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. God cannot look upon sin. 
See, there's no way we can get into God's presence again. I want to get into God's presence. There's no way we can. There's not a thing we can do. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. Only God can do that for us. And see, Muslims have a confusion here. And I always say, listen, what is it you're doing to receive barakah? And one of the things they love to do is to sacrifice goats. You can use this as a bridge with your Muslim friends. Sacrificing at Eid, at the end of the fast. They sacrifice a goat. Ask them why they have to sacrifice that goat. And they say, because Abraham did. Well, then I say, well, go back to Abraham and look at where it was initiated. Go back to Genesis 15 and look and see where the whole sacrificial system was predicated. And when you look at that story, you will see that God comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham, get three goats, I'm sorry, three animals and three birds. Sorry, two birds. Three animals and two birds. Bring them here, kill them, put them on the rock and split them in half. Now, what was he doing? Well, he was bringing a a testimony He was bringing a commitment, and this was the commitment that all the people in the time of Abraham used. This was how they created a covenant, and the covenant was a blood covenant with animals and birds. So Abraham did that. He got three animals, two birds, killed them, split them in half, put them on the rock, expecting that God and he would walk through and seal the covenant. But look what God did. God put Abraham to sleep. God did not let Abraham walk through. Only God went through as a fiery brand. That was the initiation of the Abrahamic covenant. That was the initiation of the sacrificial system. The entire sacrificial system was predicated on the notion that only God can do this. This is not something we can do. Doesn't matter how many good deeds, it doesn't mean a thing. We are still too unholy. One sin is all it took to throw us out of God's presence. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. The only perfect man who is God. God who became man. The perfect sacrifice that could eradicate that sin. That's exactly who God did. That's what God said at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. When he had just condemned Adam and Eve for that sin. He condemned them but then he gave the solution right there. He turns to Eve and he says to Eve from your line. Someone, he, that means it's going to be a male, third person, singular male. He's going to come and crush the head of Satan, and Satan's going to bruise his heel. There it is. That's the first prophecy we have of the crucifixion. He, it's going to be a male. It's going to come from a woman. There it is. It has to come from a woman, and it has to be a male. And all the way through, prophet after prophet started giving us tie, sign after sign ooh, over who this person was. It's going to come from a female. It's going to be the Son of Man. He's going to be known as the Son of God. He's going to be known as the Messiah. And Isaiah makes it even more specific. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, I made it really easy for you. Seven is the perfect number. Double that 14. So Isaiah seven fourteen. Isaiah says this. This shall be a sign. A virgin will conceive. Now wake up, people. Virgins don't conceive. Not in my world, they don't. And if a virgin did conceive, there she's no longer a virgin. So when Isaiah said this, he was saying, everybody wake up. Something, something special is happening. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. There it is. Not a girl, but a boy. When a virgin conceives, something's happening. But who is this boy? He shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. So when a virgin conceives in the whole history of mankind, and see, Muslims know this. Muslims are aware that there's only been one virgin in the whole history of mankind who is conceived, and her name is Mary. And that's in Surah 19, Ayah 20. Chapter 19, verse 20, it talks about the virgin Mary. So you can use that as a bridge. 
Help your Muslim friends to say, you know who we're talking about. But you have no idea the significance of that birth. When a virgin conceives and bears a son, that is God with us. That's God. Ooh, I love it. At least the Quran got something right. So when the virgin conceives and bears a son, that sacrifice, that God who becomes man, God with us, when he dies and rises again, then we have atonement. Muslims always tell me, hold on a minute, how can you say one man can take over my sin? It's very clear in the Quran, in Surah 53, Ayah 38, and Surah 6, Ayah 164, that no man can take on the sin of another. We, we are all responsible for our sin. How can you dare say that the sin of Adam and Eve is imputed on us? How can we be responsible for Adam and Eve's sins? That is not just. Now, I love it when Muslims ask me that question, and you can do the same thing. Ask them, hold on a minute, stop right there. See, in the Quran, you have, three refer- you have three chapters that talk about the Garden of Eden. Surah 2, Surah 7, and Surah 20. 2, 7, and 20. And when it talks about the Garden of Eden, it mentions that the Garden of Eden is up in space. It's not on earth. It's up, it, up there, way up in space. They are given the same choice to eat of a tree or not. They eat of the tree. They shouldn't have. They were condemned for that. Then they were forgiven by Allah. After they were forgiven, then they were thrown out of that garden down to Mecca on earth. So I always ask my Muslim friends, if you believe it's unjust for us to be imputed with Adam and Eve's sin, then let me ask you right now, are you up in that garden, up in space? No, you're not. This is England. This is not the Garden of Eden. Every one of us is born here. None of us are born in that garden. We know we're not in space, which means we're all imputed with Adam and Eve's sin. The original sin is right through the Quran. They can't get away from it. So how are they going to get back to that garden? Baraka, 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 baraka. Good deed after good deed after good deed. See, every Muslim knows even when they die, the good deeds, the records are taken off from the angel on this side. The bad deeds are taken off from the angel on this side, and they're put on a scale. And hopefully, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, if you have more good deeds than bad deeds, then you're given the right to cross a razor-sharp bridge called the Sirat. And as you're walking across that bridge, under which is hell, and hell is a mass molten pus lake, a lake of molten pus below you. As you're walking across the Sirat, Allah can throw you down at any time. You have no idea whether you're going to make it across. No Muslim has an assurance of salvation. Not even Muhammad knew whether he was going to make it across. But let me ask you folks here. Do you have assurance of salvation? Yes, you do. Do you know where you're going? Please say yes. Every one of you knows where you're going. You need to help the Muslim friend realize that the only assurance of salvation has nothing to do with barakah, has nothing to do with angels on either shoulder, have nothing to do with a sit-up bridge. It has everything to do with Jesus. That death and resurrection. They deny that death. And because they deny that death, they have denied everything I'm about. And see, when you're talking with Muslims, don't talk about the resurrection because they don't care diddly swat about the resurrection. If Jesus never died, then of course he was alive three days later. Of course the disciples saw him. So 500 saw him. Could be 1,000 saw him. He never died. Therefore, you're going to have to zero in on the crucifixion. And when you do, you can do five things. This is the five things I do with my Muslim friends. Say, hold on a minute. 
Does your Quran agree with that? In Surah 4, 157, it's very clear that Christ did not die. It said, for he did not die, that's Jesus. They thought it was so, another was given his image. So someone died in his place. Another man was put on the cross, and he died instead of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus didn't die. And that one little verse, chapter 4, verse 157, damns us all to eternity. And that's why we've got to confront the crucifixion. You've got to confront the crucifixion with Muslims. Now, here's the problem. The Quran contradicts itself. In Surah 19, verse 33, Jesus says of himself, blessed be me the day I die, the day I rise again. I'm sorry, the day I was born, the day I die, and the day I rise again. Born, dead, rose again. Jesus claims that in the Quran. So how are you going to deal with Surah 4157? There's a contradiction between those two verses. See what Muslims do with that. I won't tell you what they do with it. They try to get out of it. They try to make it a future tense. But that's the first problem. There's an internal contradiction with the Quran. Did he die or didn't he die? We're very clear he did die. But he didn't stay dead. Friday's here, but Sundays are coming. Secondly, in the Quran, you these two verses that I mentioned earlier, Surah 53, Ayah 38, and Surah 6, Ayah 164, says very clearly that nobody can take on the penalty of another. No one can take on the guilt of another. What about the man that's on the cross? The man whose image is given of Jesus. What about that man? Is he not taking the guilt of Jesus? Is that not a theological contradiction? How can God say that in Scripture and then put that man on the cross instead of Jesus? Because certainly he's taking the guilt of Jesus. Number three, what about the historical testimony? Because the historical testimony is very clear that Jesus did die. Look at all the historians that talk about Jesus. And we have quite a bit outside of the Bible. You have Thallus and Phlegon who were debating two, 20 years after Jesus' death in 52 AD. They were debating about the death of Jesus. And they were claiming that the day that Jesus died, the sun went dark and the earth shook. They were Greek historians. They were not Christians. They knew that that was Jesus on the cross. Tacitus hated Christians. Roman historian, writing at the end of the first century, had nothing good to say about Christianity, but he is the one that tells us when Jesus dies. He was very clear that Jesus did die, and he was very clear that it happened under Pontius Pilate, under the rule of Tiberius. That's why we know it's 33 AD, because of Tacitus, the Roman historian. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writing in the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, not only tells us the date that Jesus died and the fact that he did die, he tells us also that his, son, his brother James died. That's why we have his testimony, but he goes on beyond that. He's the only one that says, and according to the Christians, they believe he rose again. The only reference we have to the resurrection comes from this Jewish historian living in Rome. So there you have Greek historians, Thallus and Phlegon. You have a Roman historian, Tacitus, and you have a Jewish historian, Josephus, all believing that Jesus died. So where in the world do we get to this notion that he didn't die? From a book that was written 600 years later. What do you trust? The historical accounts that come from the first century? Or one book written by a man who could not read or write 600 years later? What about the eyewitness account, number four? Were there not any eyewitnesses to the event of Jesus on the cross? What about John? John knew Jesus intimately, did he not? He was a friend of Jesus. He had been with Jesus for three years. Don't you think he would have known that that, who, who was on the cross? Don't you think he could have identified whether that was Jesus or not? What about the mother of Jesus, Mary? She was at the foot of the cross. Mary knew Jesus for 33 years. 
Don't you think a mother would have known her own son? And what about the man on the cross? Don't you think he would have said something? You got the wrong man. Please, I'm not Jesus. I don't hear that in his lips. Look at the records of what he said. That doesn't sound like a man that's been duped. That doesn't sound like a man who's not guilty. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly was crucified. And look what he says from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Oh, I love Jesus. Truly, that was Jesus on the cross. And then we get to the last category. If Jesus did not die and another man took his place, what does that say about the God behind this book, Allah of the Quran? What kind of God takes the image, puts it on another man, and then tells nobody? Better yet, what kind of prophet allows another man to die in his place and then comes up three days later into the upper room, shows himself to the disciples, claimed that he was a resurrected Jesus. Even a week later, when Thomas refused to believe him, he showed the holes in his hands and he showed the holes in his feet and took credit for what he had done on the cross. What kind of prophet lies like that? Not my Jesus. Not any prophet I know. And what kind of God does this to a man, puts another man in that place, never tells anybody, and for 600 years tells nobody, and then he decides, oh, let me go down to Arabia, let me send this revelation to this man who could not read and write from a little shepherd herder or a camel herder there in Arabia and correct the record. Not my God. My God does not deceive. Not the God of the Bible. Can you see the implications? If they deny the crucifixion, they deny God, they deny the whole prophetic line. They deny who and who the people were, and they deny the whole historical record, and they deny the testimony of the witnesses that are there. Folks, we've got to talk about Jesus. Folks, be glad and proud of your Bible. There's no reason why you need to apologize for the Bible. It has been the book that has been vilified. It has been the book that has been criticized. It has been the book that has been attacked by more people over the last 200 years. The whole idea of historical criticism came out of the Bible. It was Christians who confronted the Bible back in the late 1800s there in Germany, in Tübingen, men like Wellhausen, who started the whole premise of what we know as historical criticism today. And every one of the criticisms, whether it's redacted criticism, source criticism, the documentary hypothesis, historical criticism, literary criticism, every one of them have now been answered. That's why I love my Bible. We can't find one artifact, any tablet, mural, stella, obelisk, not one tablet, historical tablet, one artifact that controverts a single properly understood biblical statement. That's the beauty of my Bible. I thank God for his word, and I thank God for the word that took on flesh and dwelt among us. See, there's two words of God. There's one, and Jesus is the other word of God. Muslims only have this as their word of God. They claim that this is their word. They claim this is eternal, that it always exists on tablets in heaven. They claim that it was sent down to a man named Muhammad over a period of 610 to 632, 22 years. They claim that it was completed at the time of Uthman, and they claim that it is unchanged. Those are the four claims they make about this Quran. We've pretty much destroyed the last two. We can't talk about the first two because they're nothing more than subjective. But the last two claims that it was complete and unchanged, we've destroyed 
as of last year. We did, I did a debate in Toronto. You can go up and see it on YouTube with Dr. Shabirali, where I made, and I just looked at the six major manuscripts. He could not respond to any of the of the historical claims we now have about the manuscripts. I looked at the 800 corrections that are in every one of these manuscripts and that these corrections continue up until the ninth century. For 200 years, they were still correcting the Quran, still putting in, erasing, accreting, taping, putting in uh, coverings over top and writing over top of them. We have hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds that we've now filmed on all of the manuscripts which means there was no manuscript of that Quran from the 7th century. We can't find a complete manuscript of that Quran from the 8th century. We don't even yet have one from the 9th century, which means Muhammad had nothing to do with the Quran. Therefore, who is Muhammad and what's his purpose? But see, we know all about Jesus. They've tried to destroy his record. And see, this is nothing more than the word of God. It's true, but this is not the only word of God. We would never make the claims about this Bible that they make about their Quran. Please don't ever assume that this book is eternal. It's not eternal. We know who wrote it. We know when it was written. We know the authors of every one of the books, most of all the books. Sent down? No. We would never say this book was sent down. The names of many of the authors are put to their books. Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah. Isaiah wrote Isaiah. Matthew wrote Matthew. Mark wrote Mark. Luke wrote Luke. John wrote John. And on and on and on. Complete? Yes, we would say they were complete in their original form, but we don't have the original manuscripts because the original manuscripts are written on papyrus, which disintegrates within 100 years. So we would say, yes, they are complete in their originals. Have they been changed? Yes, they have been changed. We know where the changes are. We even warn the readers. At the end of Mark, chapter 16, verse 9 to 20, those verses are not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts. So we warn the reader that those could be, have been possibly put in later. John chapter 7, verse 53, to John chapter 8, verse 11. We put a line before and after to warn the readers, these verses are not found in, in the Greek manuscripts. If in doubt, throw them out. But we leave them there because there's nothing in those 40 verses that are in doubt. There's nothing in any of those 40 verses that's not found elsewhere. See, we know never to make those kind of claims about our Bible. Eternal? No. Sent down? No. Complete? Yes. Changed? Yes. But see, this is not our only word of God. We've got another word of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. What's his name? What's his name? I can't hear you. Come on, let's get louder than that. Oh, I love that name. Is Jesus eternal? Was he sent down? Is he complete? Is he unchanged? Whoa, the very thing the Muslims are looking for, we've already got. And his name is Jesus. Folks, can you see why they need Jesus? They need to have the eternal word. They need to have the unchanged word. They need to have the consistent word. And he is not a book, it's a man. This is the word of God that talks about the word of God. The eternal word of God. And every one of you, that's all you need to talk about. Talk about Jesus and talk about the Bible, the book and the man, the book and the man. In fact, we're the only ones that can engage them at this level. Nobody else can talk about another book. See, we start from the same paradigm Muslims start from. They start with a book modeled by a man. We start with a bigger book modeled by a bigger man. Let's bring him home. I know you have lots of questions, and I'll let Andy uh, come out here now and try to explain what we're going to do next.
here's what we're going to do, because we really want you equipped, really want you being able to put some of what you've heard into practice, but we know there'll be scores of questions. Uh, so we're going to take this on a little bit further for another 20 minutes or so. Uh, right over there, so on your left, is a microphone. If you've got a question, get there now. Uh, form a line, and Jay will just take them one after the other. So the mic's just down here. Thank you. If you're coming up, let's get a line going. If people have got to go, you're free to go, but we're going to keep this going for another 15, 20 minutes, maybe a bit longer. I'm just going to hang on a bit. So if you have got questions, please come down. Otherwise, just keep the noise down a little bit. I know some of you will be going because you've got to get to outreach. But keep the noise down for us, please, because the seminar hasn't finished. Okay, so if those of you who are leaving, if you could just leave quietly, I want to maximize time for questions. Jay has served us brilliantly, but there's still more. So let's take the first question, and then once, I'm just going to step back now, and Jay will just take this, and I'll let him run it. So whoever's next, as soon as this one's done, get to the mic, ask your question, and we'll keep it going. Thanks, Jay. Okay. First question. Hi, I actually had two quick questions, if that's okay. Um, the first one is um, about you talking about the Word of God and Jesus being the Word of God. I've heard it said that it says in the Quran that Jesus is Kalamatullah, the Word of God, and I just wondered if you could talk about that. Absolutely. Um, and my second one is for those of us who don't feel very confident in having a debate but would love to be able to offer to maybe pray with our Muslim friends or open the Bible and see what we can learn of spiritual truth together, do you have any kind of tips on how to go about making that happen? Okay, that very good. Thanks. Yeah, and the first question that you've already answered, and that is the Kalimatu Allah is also known, Jesus is also given that title in Surah 4. So third, certainly, he is the Kalimatu Allah, he is the Word of God. Use that as a bridge to say, listen, the Word of God you're looking for is not the Quran, it's Jesus, it's in your own Quran. As far as trying to start debate, you're talking dialogues and discussions with Muslims. I would suggest that if you go into any Muslim, one of the things, most of you are students, look on the bulletin boards, for the Islamic Society meetings. Every university, every college has uh, what they call an ISOC, Islamic Society. Go to those meetings. You may be the only non-Muslim there. Don't worry about it. You will find that the Muslims want the same thing you want. And what you do is listen to the speakers and then raise your hand during the question and answer period. And identify yourself as a Christian. Say, I am a Christian. I have some questions. I would like to be able to find out what you believe on A, B, C, or D. Or something that has been said in the meeting. You will find that lots of the meetings will be attacking Christianity. And you need to be there to correct them. Say, I have a correction. That's not what the Bible said. That's not what Jesus claimed. Let me tell you what he said. Let me tell you what he claimed. What's going to happen is, as soon as that meeting is finished, they're going to make a beeline for you. And they're going to want to talk to you about it. Because you will be the first Christian they've met that actually believes in Jesus as God and the Bible as the Word of God. And you will start a great relationship. And also you will find that your integrity will just raise in their eyes. They really do want to find Christians that really believe what they're saying. Because they think all of Britain is Christian. And they look at the way we live. They look at the way we act. They look at our movies and our television. And they say, this is Christianity? So you be the one to change that perception and bring them home to Jesus Christ. Thanks. A great question. Go ahead. Next one. Hi. Um, 
Uh, you said in your talk that we can point to certain titles um, of Jesus, used of Jesus, like Son of God, Son of Man, Christ, uh, which seem to imply the, the divinity of Jesus. Um, but I just wondered uh, about what is the evidence um, that Jews of Jesus' day would have seen these as divine titles. Because, for instance, um, Luke in, I think, Luke 3 verse 38 describes Adam as um, the son of God. And also when um, I've read things about the son of man, um, I read a book by James Dunn, and he says that the son of man at the time, uh, the son of man referred to in Daniel 7, would have been um, conceived of as either an angel uh, or a man. Mm -hmm. And also... Um, William Lane Craig, in his book, Reasonable Faith, he said that there was no definite conception of a divine Christ um, in the time of Jesus. So I just wondered. Great question. And let me just answer it two ways. If you look at, at the, uh, the titles itself, probably the best way to find out whether or not what Jews really meant by it is to go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 62 to 66. Start with that. And that's Jesus being questioned in the Sanhedrin by Caiaphas. Caiaphas comes up to Jesus, and remember, Caiaphas is the chief priest, and he wants to see, he wants to know exactly how Jesus is going to answer, and what does he say? Are you the Messiah? Not a Messiah. Remember, there are many who, call, who are sons of men. We are all sons of men, but there's only one who is the son of man, definite article. There's the difference. All of us are sons of God and daughters of God, but there's only one who is the son of God. There's the difference. Does it have a definite article before it? Caiaphas knows this, and that's why he comes to Jesus there in the Sanhedrin, and he asks, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? How did Jesus answer that? In verse 63, yes, I am. He takes on the claim, but then he goes one step further. In the next verse, he says, and you shall see the Son of Man, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds, referring back to Daniel chapter 7, 14. As soon as he said that, look at the reaction of Caiaphas. He tears his robe, turned towards the Sanhedrin, and said, what further proof do we need? This man has blasphemed. So there's the, there's, the, there's the great scenario. And what's really good, it's all in one scene. You get all three of the divine titles by Caiaphas. Jesus has affirmative to all three of them because he wasn't just calling himself a son of man, which we are, and which also Adam is. He's also a son of man and also a son of God. Even David is a son of God, but not the son of God. There's the difference. And that's why when Caiaphas heard it, he turned to that, and that's why he said, this man shall be, must be killed. Not because he was an insurrectionist, not because he was a thorn in the flesh, because he, a mere man, was daring to call himself God. Okay? Use that scenario. It's great. Matthew 26, verse 62 to 66. Yeah, next question. Um, because the Quran uses so many um, characters from the Bible, why did they choose to use Abraham, especially since he disowned Ishmael, which is supposed to be the, descent, the ancestor of most Muslims? Great question. I love that one. That's a good one because it's, it's one that you can actually zero in on and do that with Muslims. Why did they choose Abraham? They have to because they see Muhammad as a direct lineage of Ishmael. Therefore, they all have looked up back to Abraham and most of the Arabs knew that they came through Abraham, through Ishmael and Hagar and that's why they call themselves Ishmaelites or they gave their name to themselves as Hagarines from Hagar. So they already knew that, and that's why they had such a great alliance with the Jews, because both the Jews and the Ishmaelites and the Hagarines, which are the Arabs, trace the lineage back to Abraham. So they are brothers through Abraham. But here's the problem. They don't know about Genesis 17. That's where you need to come in. 
you need to go back to Genesis 17 and just open up and read verses 19 and 20 because Abraham had the same question, did he not? Abraham said to God, what about my son Ishmael, my firstborn? What did God say? I will bless him because he is your son. He will have 12 sons. They will be the rulers of 12 nations. But my covenant is with Isaac. My covenant is with Isaac. You need to help Muslims to read that. But don't just stop there. Go to chapter 22. Genesis 22. God then comes a second time. He comes to Abraham and he says, not once, not twice, but three times. Give me your one and unique son. Your one and only son, Isaac. Your one and only son, Isaac. Hold on a minute. Abraham had two sons. Did God make a mistake? Did Moses make a mistake? Did he forget? No. As far as God was concerned, Ishmael was no longer a son of Abraham. He didn't even, didn't even mention him. As far as God was concerned, Isaac was his only son. Why? Because Ishmael was nothing more than man's impatience, man trying to do God's work for him. Isaac is what God had promised. Isaac is the promised son. And from that time out, you don't hear anything more about Ishmael. He's completely rec- uh, written off the record. He is no longer part of the prophetic line. And if you have any doubt, go to Galatians 4. Galatians 4 really underlines it. Paul then says, there are two women that represent two covenants. You have the covenant of the uh, Hagar, the slave woman from Arabia. Ooh, I love that. Even more specific. Here's Hagar, and then you have the other woman, Sarah, who is the free woman. One is the slave, one is the free. The slave woman's son, Ishmael, persecutes the free woman's son, Isaac. And then what does Paul say? Have nothing to do with the slave woman's son. You are from the free woman's son. There's the application. Paul, 600 years before Islam even came onto the world stage, already was prophesying, not even knowing that Arabia is where the problem is. And I thank God for Scripture, because it helps me to then understand what I'm to do with Ishmael and what I'm to do with Isaac. I'm to have nothing to do with Ishmael. I come through Isaac. And it's not me saying it. God putting in His Word, His wisdom, so that we know where to go. Thanks for the question. A great one for you. Um, Hey, uh, my question is... um I was arguing with one of my friends about Christianity, and she is a Muslim herself. And she told me that the Bible is just as violent as um, the Quran. And what the point that she had me at was Deuteronomy 13, when it's 13 from verse 12 to 14, and it says, When you're living in a town that the Lord your God has given you, you may hear that some worthless people of your nations have misled the people of of their town to worship gods that you have never worshipped before. If you hear such rumors, investigate, investigate it thoroughly. And if it's true uh, that these that this evil things do happen, then kill all of them, people in the town, and all their livestock. Yeah. So isn't, and she told me more, there's more verses that say that if anyone... Joshua not, 6 verse 20 is just even more violent. Yeah, so okay. like, how can I argue with her. Okay, what's your name? Calvin. 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 Calvin, do you follow Moses? Yeah. Yeah. Please say no. No, no, I don't follow Moses. Because if you follow Moses, you're going to have to go to the Mosaic time. You're going to have to go follow the Mosaic law. That means you're going to have to circumcise. Ouch to you. If you follow Moses... You're going to have to start sacrificing goats. Ouch to the goats. If you follow Moses and you're a father like I am, I have three sons. They are all rebellious. I'm going to have to execute all three of them. Thank God I don't follow Moses. So who do you follow? I follow Jesus. 
Jesus, absolutely. And Mac, this is what you need to say. Most Muslims come up to you and they, they, they say it in a number of different ways. So I say, hold on a minute. In the Old Testament, you have a God of violence. They, let, they usually quote Joshua 6 verse 20. Here, God says to Joshua, go into Jericho, kill all men, women, and children, all living things. You won't find any violent verse like that in the Quran, proving that the Bible is a lot more violent. You must make a distinction between the Old and the New Testament. See, the Old Testament is violent. Yes, there's lots of violent there. God does use violence. He participates in the violence. He was the one that destroyed Jericho. He was the one that destroyed 185,000 of Sennacherib's men. That was God doing that. But every time that he did that, he kept on saying, but the Messiah will come. And when this Messiah will come, he will be the Prince of Peace. And when the Prince of Peace will come, then the lion will lie with the lamb. And then you will take your swords and beat them into plowshares. Always pointing to when the Messiah would come. So when the Messiah came, and every Muslim knows who the Messiah is, because in the Quran, the name for Jesus, Isis, uh, the title for Issa is Al-Masihu, the Messiah. Only he is given that title 11 times in the Quran. So when the Al-Masihu comes, look and see what Jesus does. And what I love to do is go to Matthew chapter 5. Because Jesus says it very clearly in Matthew 5. I have not come to destroy the law. I have not come to destroy Moses. I have come to fulfill it. There's the operative word. He has come to fulfill that law. Now look what he does next. He gives us six examples of what he's talking about in that chapter. For you have heard it say in Mosaic law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now I say turn the other cheek. Ooh, a completely new law, a completely new covenant, a completely new testament. For you have heard it say to love your friends and hate your enemies. But now I say to love your enemies. Ooh, I love that. That is unique to Jesus Christ. So what I tell my Muslim friends is, in the Old Testament, God did use violence, and he had to use violence because to protect his people. There was a covenant. There was, a, there was also a hierarchical theocratic state. That was there to protect these children that had just come out of 400 years of captivity. They were absolutely naive. They had just seen the great works of God there in, uh, in Egypt. And then when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, they built a golden calf. Look how naive they were. They needed to be protected. Now, this is what I do. Calvin, I use my three sons. I have a six-year-old, I have a 12-year-old, and I have a 16-year-old. My six-year-old son, I protect him. Now, you might say, do I have different laws for each son? Yes, I do. I don't let my six-year-old son go outside the house by himself because he can be hit by a bus and be killed. I'm a loving father, so I have rules and regulations. I protect him more than my other two sons. Why? Because I'm a loving father. I have a complete different law for my six-year-old than I do for my 12-year-old. And that's like the Israelites in 1400 BC during the Mosaic period, having had 400 years of captivity. They needed to be protected. They needed, yes, to be secured. God had rules and regulations, had a completely different environment that he was working with. Same God, but a different law. Now, 1400 years later, Jesus comes. Jesus comes with a whole new covenant, a whole new law, a whole new testament. And look at those laws. They're much more freeing, but they're also a lot more responsibility. And take a look at the New Testament. You will see the principles that are there are much more difficult to live by than even the Mosaic law. But they are certainly much more freeing. Completely new law. Just like my 12-year-old son. I let him go all over London by himself. But I am the same father for both sons. Who's changed? Have I changed as a father? No. It's my sons who have changed. It's the children of Israel who have changed. Over 1,400 years, they don't no longer need Mosaic law. They don't need to live on milk anymore. Now, they can live on meat. 
And that's what we're given with Jesus Christ. But hold on a minute. I have another son, a 16-year-old. And he represents Islam 600 years later. See, 600 years later, a new prophet comes according to Islam. His name is Muhammad. And he brings a whole other law called Sharia law. But take a look at Sharia law. It's very similar to Mosaic law. Do's and don'ts. How to walk, talk, eat, drink, sing. Every area of life impacted upon you. Basically treating you like a child again. Taking us and regressing us back to 1400 BC. As violent, almost as violent as Mosaic law. Can you imagine as me as a father treating my 16-year-old as a 6-year-old? I wouldn't do that as a father. Not a loving father. Use that as an example for your Muslim friends. See, God progresses. He doesn't regress. And we follow Jesus. Get it right. We don't follow Moses. We don't follow Abraham. I don't follow Billy Graham. I follow Jesus. And everything Jesus says I'm to do, I can do today. He is the most relevant man I know. Bring him home. And make sure you talk about Jesus. I hope that helps. Um, does that, doesn't that mean that the Old Testament is kind of less important than the New Testament? Oh, it's absolutely important because it's foundational to everything where we've come from. But we don't go back to it. We don't go back to 1400 BC. We go back to Jesus. Okay? Uh, thank you. Good on you. Next question. Hello. Um, I was wondering if you could shed some light on the, uh, the Hadith and the commentaries and the other things outside of the Quran and what weighting a Muslim would give to them. Obviously, we only have the Bible. That's it for us. But did, did, what's the weighting of authority? Oh, it's a great question. Basically, if you look at the Hadith, now what she's saying, let me just define terms so people may not know what you're talking about. When, for Muslims today, when you read the Quran, there's not much in there to follow. It's very difficult to read. You know there's, not, there's only one complete story in the entire Quran. It is what we call ulta pulta. It takes you all over the place. It confuses you. You cannot get through it without falling asleep. In fact... 20% of the Quran, not even the Muslim scholars understand. A fifth of the Quran, not even the Muslim scholars understand. So it's not a very good book to follow. That's why they don't have Quranic studies like we have Bible studies. This is their general revelation. This is their primary revelation, though. This is the only thing they've got to know what God's saying. So this is their primary revelation. This comes from God himself. This is not our primary revelation. In order to understand how to walk, talk, eat, and drink, and sleep. They need to go and follow the example of the Prophet Muhammad. How he lived is how they're to live today. How he, what he said is what they're to say today. That's why they have to go to the Sira, which would be the Sira Rasulullah, the biography of Muhammad, the Hadith, which would be the sayings of Muhammad, the Tafsir, which would be the commentaries to explain this book, and the Tahrik, which would be the histories. Those are known as the Islamic traditions. They were written two to three hundred years after the Quran. Two to three hundred years. Now, what's the equivalent? I would suggest the New Testament is our equivalent because we also have the biography of Jesus, the Siddha of Jesus, do we not? That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We also have the Hadith of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the red letter where Jesus speaks. There is the Hadith of Jesus. There is the parallels. There is the equivalent. We also would have the Tafsir, which would be the commentaries. Those are all of Paul's letters. And then we would have the Tahrik, the history. That would be the history of the Acts of the Apostle, the book of Acts. There is the four genre that we're looking for. They're the exact same thing that they have in their Islamic traditions. So our New Testament would be equivalent to their traditions. But see... Their traditions are secondary. Their traditions tell them how to walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep, how they're to live their daily life following Muhammad's example. Our traditions, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels and also the letters of Paul, tell us how to walk, talk, eat, drink, and sleep. Do, do they not? There's the parallels, but then what's our primary revelation? Jesus. Jesus the there you go. 
Jesus is the primary. So if you're going to do a comparison, compare the Quran to Jesus and you've got a better comparison. He is our word of God. He is eternal. This is their word of God. This is not eternal, not sent down, not even complete, and certainly not unchanged. Jesus fulfills everyone. Much better comparison. And you can therefore see everything they, they desire of this. We've gotten Jesus Christ. Bring him home. Okay. So would they give them equal weight then, the traditions and the Quran? No, no. The traditions are nothing more than man-made documents. So is our Bible, man-made documents. Their traditions are not even inspired. Our Bible is inspired. Their traditions only begin to appear two to three hundred years later. Our traditions begin to appear within 15 years. All of our traditions, the Bible itself, is finished within 60 years of Christ's death. None of their traditions even begin to appear for 200 years. Therefore, they say nothing about who Muhammad is from anybody that saw him or heard him. All based on oral tradition. Ooh, I love it. So ours, we have it coming and going on both sides. Hopefully that helps. Thank you. Hi, Jay. Hi. Um, so I've just graduated from a university which has like a predominantly Muslim population, uh, varieties like Ahmadiyyas, Shias, Sunnis, and so on, and also ones who, have like, uh, who are Muslim because of their family or for political reasons and others. How would you speak to Jesus, uh, especially when these Muslims will sort of group up and have a go at you saying that you don't know the Quran in the original language or you wouldn't understand it because... Uh, you're not putting it in the correct context. Okay, those are f- three different questions. Let me see if I can put them all together. It depends on who's standing in front of you. If you have an Ahmadiyya, you're going to have to do different than a Sunni. Who are you going to do different than a Shiite? That's the first thing. Find out where, which branch they are. If they're a Shiite, you're going to probably have an offer a lot more conver- uh, conversation with them. Sunnis are much more difficult because they already are the majority. Shiites are the persecuted minority. Ahmadiyyas even more so. Ahmadiyyas would be the ones that would want to talk with you the most because they would like to evangelize you. In fact, they're by far the most evangelistic here in Britain. And the Ahmadiyyas would believe that Jesus was on the cross. So you can start with the crucifixion with the Ahmadiyya right away. They would love to zero in on that. The reason why they believe it was Jesus on the cross, he just didn't die. He swooned. Take that on real quickly and show how hopeless a scenario that is. They believe that he swooned, he went into the grave, he then woke up from his swoon, threw off the two-ton stone, overpowered the 16 guards, and then went off to Kashmir and died in Kashmir. Now, you can unpack that if you want to. If you're dealing with a Sunni or a Shiite, you're going to have to deal with much more intrinsically with who God is. You're going to have to deal much more intrinsically with also the, the ramifications of God coming to earth, much of the stuff that we dealt with today. The second question is... So repeat the second question. Uh, how would you deal with the ones who are political or cultural? Okay, um, and also the ones that say you don't know their Quran, you can't understand them. Yeah. What you need to do with that is just ask them questions then. Since if you're not able to understand, and I don't expect you to, ask them simple questions like, who is this group called ISIS? Use what's in the news. Use these folios that have just come up in the last two weeks. Have them start pouring out, have them start defining them from you, and then showing them the alternative. And as soon as you claim that you're a Christian, that you believe Jesus is God, or the Bible is the Word of God, they're going to have a whole litany of questions for you. That's where it gets fun. And all you need to do is talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus, and bring in the Bible, bring in the Bible. And that's all God asks you to do. But what you're going to find out is that Muslims, more so than any other, love to talk about Jesus and the Bible. Now, what other student on a university campus wants to talk about Jesus and the Bible but Muslims? Christians. Well, that's why I love them. Because they're just like us. And we can go for three hours. I don't know why all of you don't want to talk to Muslims. Because they love to talk about the things we want to talk about. Engage with them. 
and just preach Jesus. And what you're going to find out, you're going to make them jealous. You're going to say, I have a relationship with God. Do you? I have an assurance. Do you? I know where I'm going. Do you? Jesus can answer my prayers. Can yours? These kind of questions are going to prick their, 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 uh, their excitement. And that's why you're going to be able to talk about God and Jesus for hours on end. God bless you. Go with it and enjoy it. Hiya. Um, I was talking to the president of the Islamic Society at my university, and he asked me this question. He said, Christians have to believe that Jesus died, rose again, and he is Lord in order to be saved. But in the Old Testament, even before Abraham, like if you take Enoch, he didn't believe that. And so he said, that's a change. That's a change of faith, whereas in Islam, it's always that there is one God, and every prophet says that. So I tried to explain it's an unfolding revelation, um, but he wasn't really having any of that. He said, um, so why do Christians have to believe that Jesus died and rose again in order to be saved? Why don't you go back to the earlier things like Enoch and just believe what he believed? And I didn't really know how to answer him. It was about midnight. So <laughs> I would love your wisdom on that. Probably you need to go to Hebrews chapter 10 and 11 and just read it for him and say that the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross goes both directions. And it fulfills everything that has come before. And it talks about the faith of Abraham, even the faith of Enoch. It was their faith in what God was going to do. That faith, not that it had happened yet, but they had faith that God was going to put. They didn't even know how it was going to happen. They didn't, wouldn't have known about crucifixion back then. But it, they didn't need that. God honored that faith. And that's why the crucifixion fills both sides of history, both from the beginning and including to us today. But we're not there to talk about Enoch. We're not there to try to understand the faith of Enoch. All we're asked to do is to, we're on the other side of crucifixion and the resurrection. Are we willing to accept what Christ has done? Make sure you zero in back on that.